One of the unsung heroes of World War II was a man named Desmond Doss. Uh, some of you may be familiar with that name, like me, only because there was a movie made about him recently. History had basically forgotten about Desmond Doss until the movie Hacksaw Ridge came out a year or two ago. See, there were a great many heroes that came out of World War II, so many men and women who came out of that war as heroes, and rightfully so, but what made Desmond unique is that he was a conscientious objector, which means he didn't believe in war. He didn't believe in violence. He was raised in a devout Christian home in Virginia with a strict belief in non-violence. And yet he felt, at the same time, he felt divinely called to serve his country in the war. And so here was Desmond Doss marching into battle, uh, refusing to kill another man and refusing to carry a weapon. Now, you might not think that that would turn out very well for him. That story would be short-lived. But in fact, Desmond Doss, as a combat medic, received the Medal of Honor for his duty in the war. In the Battle of Okinawa alone, Desmond rescued 75 wounded soldiers and saved their lives. 75 men. See, his convictions were totally counterintuitive. I mean, who ever heard of a combat soldier without a weapon? And yet, in living out those convictions, his life became a great blessing to countless people and their families. It was, it was the strangeness of his convictions that made him unique. And the Apostle Peter tells us basically the same message concerning what it is to be a Christian in the midst of a culture, the culture that we live in. We're here in the middle of 1 Peter too, And up to this point in 1 Peter, he has made it very clear that the Christian message is counterintuitive. What we believe, we believe that God accepts us on the basis of his own grace, not on the basis of our moral goodness. That's counterintuitive. If you want anything worth having, you've got to earn it, you've got to pay for it, but not with God. It's a gift, something we receive. God's message is a message that says we're not here because we're, we've earned the right to be good religious people at church. We're here because Jesus Christ died on our behalf in order to give us not a better life, but a new life. That's counterintuitive. And see, with that in view, Peter now, in chapter 2, is going to show us today not just that we believe counterintuitively, but we live it out. We live now in such a way that the world perhaps has no category for us. Our convictions may be hard to understand, but it's essential for us as Christians to live in a way that doesn't make sense to the world. And in fact, it's not just that the world perhaps doesn't agree with us, but at times even the world can be antagonistic toward Christianity. And so Peter's got a word for us today. He's writing, if you remember, he's writing to Christians who were living in the first century under the Roman Empire. They, they were, were constantly being maligned, pushed to the margins for their faith. So these, he's not writing to a church that was meeting in a big, nice, air-conditioned building with a Chick-fil-A next door. Okay, they, they didn't have a Christian subculture to support them. They were living in the margins of society. And even though that's not really our present experience so much here in the Bible Belt, um, we need to pay careful attention to what Peter says to us here. Because this is not culture-specific. This is not true for them, but not somehow true for us. What Peter's going to command us to do is true across all cultures and all times. It's true for us today, and it's important that we take a close look at it. So uh, we live in a counterintuitive way. Verse 11, 1 Peter 2, verse 11. He says to us, he says to the church, Beloved, 
I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, turn and glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, Peter has already told us this once in the letter previously, that we are aliens and strangers in this world, uh, which simply means our life is not rooted, our hope is not rooted in the temporary things of the world and of this life. We live in this world, we occupy this world, but the Bible tells us that our true citizenship is in heaven, that heaven is our true home because our true allegiance is to Jesus, not to any human institution ultimately. Um, But Peter's careful here to show us that that doesn't mean that the world doesn't matter somehow or that we push the world out and cloister ourselves off as Christians and live in a separate society altogether. No, he says, this world matters and how we live in it matters, even though we're just wanderers here. And we see that. He says, I urge you to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Peter's saying that we are to resist sin. We are to flee from sin, and we are to do it as a public witness in this world, because this life in this world matters. Now, when we look at that term, I don't know how your translation, if your translation differs, but in the New American Standard that we use, uh, that term fleshly lusts, you probably think like me, when you see a phrase like that, you think of sexual sin, because it's such an obvious connection. But Peter's, I want you to know that Peter is, he has in mind all manner of sin here. Not just what we associate as, as sexual perversion, but he talks about, he wants us to understand he's talking about envy, he's talking about slander, he's talking about pride or greed, uh, even self-pity, things that we don't maybe consider as sin. Of course, sexual sins included too. Racism, the list can go on. Any sin, anything in my life, in my heart, that corrupts the goodness of God, that pushes back God's desires and his, uh, his written law, That is sin, and Peter says that we have to take an attitude towards sin that is not like we're out on the playground dabbling with it, but he uses the language of the battlefield here. Do you notice that? He says, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. So this is serious business. Peter doesn't mince words here. And, and we have to, we, I, I don't, this is not something I would need to tell you or teach you as if it's new information. Sin is incredibly difficult to abstain from. No matter how we try to dress ourselves up, no matter how I may try to appear in public, sin exists in my heart, and it is a daily battle. It is for all of us. And some more than others. Some sins are more um, difficult for us than others. Some we can perhaps manage, or some we used to be bad about, and now things have gotten better. But man, there are certain things in your heart, as you sit here, that are besetting. They are difficult for you. And Peter says it is meant to be a battle. It's why God told Cain, you remember Cain and Abel? Cain was harboring murderous thoughts toward his brother. And God visited Cain and spoke to him. Genesis 3, Genesis 4, 4 maybe. Um, And God said to Cain, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. God said to Cain, sin is coming for you and its desire is to consume you, 
to overwhelm you and take you captive. And so be sincere in your pursuit of godliness. Of course, Cain lost that battle. He killed his brother. He sinned, even though God had given him fair warning of what was coming. But see, that is the reality of the Christian life. Sin does not go away. Sin does not somehow become a casual issue that we, you know, we dabble in only occasionally, if we, as long as we can get away with it. Peter says, flee from it, abstain from it. Uh, the Apostle Paul says it even more graphically in Galatians 5. He says, to those who are in Christ, we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we need to understand that part of what it is to be a Christian, a big part of what it is, is the pursuit of holiness. Holiness is not what saves us. Christ saves us. But now he calls us to a new way of life. And Peter doesn't leave it there. It would be enough for him to say, stop sinning, abstain from sin, run away from it because it does battle against your soul. But he says there's a reason for our holiness. In verse 12, he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Meaning, live in such a way that you show God's goodness to non-Christian people around you. People who do not abide by our faith, they need to see what it looks like to live the Christian life. So that, Peter says, even if they slander you, even if they push you out to the margins, even if they make false accusations against you, they will see your good deeds ultimately and they will turn and glorify God your Father in heaven. This echoes what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5. He said, let your light shine among people so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, we don't, we, that's not under our control, the glorifying God. We can't guarantee that a person will look at me or look at you and turn and become a Christian themselves, okay? But that's our responsibility that initial, that side of the coin right there is our responsibility. Live in such a way, he says, that even if you're uh, hated for your faith, they cannot argue against your life. Last week we looked at verse 9 from this chapter where we're told to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We're called to be evangelists. Well, here in verse 12 today, he says, make sure your life backs up your message. Make sure there's integrity, that you are integrated. What you say and how you act need to have integrity, okay? That's what it is to be a Christian. So there is a public witness to our godliness. There is a, there, it's a, it, our God, your holiness has a mission. It's not just a private pursuit for you to be a better person. It's following Jesus in order that the world around us, our community around us, may see what it really looks like to follow him. Now, has it been your experience that, uh, that Christians live discernibly different lives from those who are not followers of Jesus? Uh, studies will tell us that the difference is minute. There's not a whole lot of difference. And I don't need a study, honestly, because I know my own life and my own heart, that there are still areas of my life that no matter what I believe, no matter how many scriptures I might be able to quote about that particular area, if you examine that part of my life, it, it might not look any different from anybody else. There might not be any distinction at all about me in terms of, you know, uh, you know the, the, here's, here's what we uh, watch on television. Here's the things we laugh about. Here are the things that we, that we walk past and they don't concern us um, that we, in, in some sense, can live in a way that just blends in and is not much difference. Um, but Peter's calling us here to, to be very mindful of this, 
that our pursuit of God is not private. It's true that it, is, it does take on a private... Um, uh, there's a reality there that, you, that in the private, unseen places that we love and are devoted to God, of course. But if it's only that, then we're missing a great big part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He says, live your life in such a distinct way that your integrity is a picture to the world of what God's transforming power can do. And that's why the Bible takes it so seriously. I, don't, I, don't, I can't prove this, but I bet you couldn't turn a single page in the New Testament without finding a place on that page that talks about the significance of Christian behavior. It's really, really important. And if I privatize it only, I miss what Peter's calling me to do. I've got to live it in such a way that the world can see. Not so that they'll turn and glorify me. It's not a prideful thing. It's that they might turn and glorify him because of what he does in me. Okay? So as a Christian, just where you sit, ask this question. This is a hard question for me, but it's necessary. As a Christian, does my integrity, my love, my compassion, my generosity, do those things startle people? Or do I just kind of blend in? Do the things that make me uniquely Christian, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, are those things so obvious in my life that it causes people to wonder at me and to seek an explanation? That's what Peter's calling us to here. He's not calling us to blend in. He's calling us to live in such a way that when people see you, they get a glimpse of God. And that's a high bar, but that's, that's what it is to be a Christian. We are, we are lights in the world, and that's what we're meant to be. And that's a good thing, even though it may be for us a scary thing. And so what Peter's going to, he's, he's calling us now to, to, uh, to apply a way of life that is not uh, sequestered. We're not a separate society. We're the good, everybody out there is bad, and so let's, you know, let's segregate here. No, no, he says, live your life in such a way that others may see your good deeds and glorify God because of your life, right? Now, how do we do that? Peter's actually going to give us some interesting application here. It's not, if I were writing 1 Peter, nobody would read it, first of all, but if I were writing it, I, I wouldn't have applied it like this, okay? So this, but, but we need this, and it's really interesting to me. Verse 13, uh, what are we supposed to do in order for verses 11 and 12 to, to manifest, to be true? Verse 13, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, that's the church, fear God, and honor the king. Now, let me, let me remind us again that the audience that Peter is writing to, these were people who were living under the weight, under the burden of the Roman Empire, which was a very unchristian government. And yet Peter's telling them as a church, you be submissive to the government and to those who are in human authority over you. In fact, in later at the end of verse 17, you see it? He calls us to honor all people, to honor the king, not just to... Uh, to tolerate, not just to give lip service. He says, honor, honor them. Uh, now, we live in an age where it's not cool to honor institution and authority. 
we are uh, typically very skeptical and cynical and embittered often toward institutions and authority. The mudslinging right now is probably worse than it's ever been. And there's, there's no probably about it. I think it's worse than ever. But Peter's telling us something really powerful here. To be a Christian is to honor human authority, but not to put our hope in it. And often it's hard for us to know the difference there. So often if I vote for someone, I'm putting my hope in that person, and it's hard to distinguish the difference here, right? But Peter says, listen, you honor authority, but you don't put your hope there. In fact, he tells us, he says, for the Lord's sake, submit yourself to human institutions. Our, our primary desire, our devotion, our allegiance is to Jesus. He is our authority. He's our ultimate king. And so the point that Peter's making here is not that we somehow subvert God's authority by submitting to others. No, we submit to them for the common good because that's what Jesus is most glorified in. It honors him for us to say, Jesus is my king, but because he's put me under institutions and authority, I'm going to honor them for the greater good. I'm going to honor them for his glory. And when we think about what that achieves, that when we, again, when, if we sequester ourselves from society and we just throw rocks, right, to say, we're right, you're wrong, that accomplishes absolutely no good. Whereas when we live in society for the good of society, even if it's a broken society, and all of them are, in this case, the Roman government, a very broken and backward and sinful regime. But Peter says, when you live there for the good of your culture, of your people, then you please God because you're showing a counterculture in how you live. The church is the counterculture within the culture. We are the people who live for Jesus while also honoring those who are above us. And that's so significant here, and it's a really hard balance for us to strike. Now, does that mean that we just blindly follow and agree with everything that authorities and institutions say and do? No. And let's be really clear on that. This, this is not blind allegiance. This is not, we'll, just, we'll agree with and do whatever the people above us say and do. In fact, part of what it is to be a Christian is to say, my allegiance is first to Christ, and therefore we can and should object to any form of government or authority that would compel us to sin, to reject him. Uh, the great story of Daniel, well, all throughout Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, remember they were thrown into the fiery furnace because they would not bow down. They would worship only God. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den for really the same reason. He continued to pray to God even though the government had outlawed it. And so there was an objection there. I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to dishonor Christ in order to obey a, a human form of government. We understand the difference there. Two quick little examples that, uh, they're not little, but they're, they're short, that maybe can help us to, to apply this present day. Um, we can, as Americans, in 2018, we can submit to and honor our government, our authority, while at the same time decrying something that we are compelled to cry out against, like abortion, for example. Why? Because we hold to a higher allegiance and we hold to a higher virtue and a higher law that says God has a purpose in creating life and God has a great, uh, a great dignity and worth that he bestows upon every life. And that's not a new thing. That's not a, in, in fact, we so often apply that as a political issue, but it's not primarily a political issue. It's the way it's always been. The earliest church in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire, uh, 
uh, allowed what's called infanticide, where if you had a baby that either had a deformity or, or some sort of disease, or it wasn't the gender that you wanted, you could cast that child out, and it would die from exposure, and you would move on from your life and face no consequences for that. And yet it was Christians, the earliest Christians, who began to take those unwanted children in and to raise them as their own. It was Christians who established the orphanage. Such an idea, idea didn't exist throughout human history until Christians, compelled by a higher virtue, a higher law, a higher dignity for human beings, we began to take unwanted children, orphan children, in. That's not a new idea. We've always done that, even when the government did not sponsor it. A second example, we, we just got back last night from Memphis. We took our kids up to Memphis for the weekend, and we made sure to go by the Lorraine Motel, uh, which is now the Civil Rights Museum. That's where Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated 50 years ago this year. He was shot on the balcony, and our children had never seen it. We took them to see it because for us it's important that our children know that story. Not just that story individually, but the entire civil rights story because that is a story primarily of Christians who rejected the status quo as to what the law said and to what the dominant culture believed. And they said there's a higher law, there's a higher virtue. God gives dignity and worth and value and equality to every single human being, and therefore we're going to fight for it according to his grace. And they did. And that battle in some ways is ongoing, but the battle was won as it regards uh, the, the, uh, the law and the letter of the law as it was written. Now, what would have happened if Christians in those days would have said, well, listen, the law is written the way it's written. We're just supposed to submit to it. Peter says submit to it. No, see, there's the difference. If the law denies the higher virtue and law of God, we object. We object. As much as it's in our power to do so, we object. And see, that's a Christian witness that the world desperately needs. It does us no good. It does the world no good if we object from afar Peter says you live among, you live in the midst of the culture that we might bring transformation to it through Christ. And so Peter's told us two things. He says, pursue holiness outwardly in our social lives as a witness to the world of what the gospel really looks like when it's lived out. And he, he tells us, in a sense, how to do that. Do that within the culture, under the authority that God has placed over you. Um, but y'all, that's risky. And so I was just, let's, let's just stop for a second and be honest about it. It's risky, and maybe you've, you've experienced this to, to a large degree or a small degree. If you live in a counterintuitive, countercultural way, you heighten the opportunity to be bullied, to be marginalized, to be trampled on. Right? People who live differently, especially differently for their faith, typically uh, cultures around the world throughout history uh, will try to snuff it out, will try to trample over it, Okay. And uh, again, we're, we're in a free democratic society, so we don't experience all of that face-to-face -face so much. But it's true even here, or it can be true even here. And so Peter gives a word to us about that here. And this is really the hardest part of what he says to us, beginning in verse eight, 18. Rather, 18. He's speaking again to the church and to a specific group of people within the church. He says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? You're just getting what you deserve. You get no credit for that. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor 
with God. Now, this is interesting because Peter told us just a minute ago, act as free people, live as free people. But then he turns and addresses people who are not free. He's talking to slaves here. And some people would look at a verse like this and say, man, why doesn't Peter denounce slavery? Why doesn't, I mean, if he's talking to slaves, why doesn't he make it clear that slavery is wrong? Isn't slavery wrong? And the answer, of course, is yes. And you can make easily a wonderful case from the Bible about slavery and the evil of it and why it's wrong and we shouldn't practice it, okay? But this, that's not what Peter's trying to accomplish right here. And I'm not trying to let him off the hook. But this is a culture into which Peter is speaking. The, the Roman culture was, was thoroughly marked by slavery. It was part of the culture. It always had been. It was built in part on slavery. Peter's not trying to change the culture in this letter. He's trying to speak to people who are powerless to do anything about it. This is how you live in the midst of circumstances you can't control. That's his, his desire here. Okay, so the, the fact that he doesn't denounce it in 1 Peter 2 shouldn't bother us because that's not his goal here. There are other places we can use for that. But, but this is a message for all of us, okay? It's, meant to be, it's not meant to be slaves only. All of us broadly, we face systems, we face people that we cannot control. And, uh, and none of us like to imagine scenarios where we have no control over our circumstances, but Peter's telling us here what to do. Look again at verse 19. And, and personalize this here. He says, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Um, so this, this scripture bothers me. Not the, the, the slavery issue is not... I think I understand why Peter doesn't go into that place. The thing that bothers me, though, is the thought of suffering unjustly. Because I'll tell you guys the truth. If I'm going to suffer unjustly, I'll just sue. Right? I'm not, I'm not going to suffer unjustly. Somebody's getting sued. Now, I've never actually sued anybody, but you understand the point. I'm going to demand my rights. I'm not going to let this happen to me. I'm going to make a phone call. I'm going I'm to talk to somebody. I'm going to figure this thing out because that's not going to happen to me. Right? And part of that is just, I've been raised in that type of society. We are a free, democratic, litigious society. You can take anybody to court for really any reason. But understand also that most of the world today and most of the world throughout history has not had that privilege. Most people don't live in a free, democratic society where they can go to court, where they have any power or sway to stand up for their rights and defeat the system, okay? And so Peter's writing to people who are suffering unjustly and they have no way out of it. And I want to be very clear on this. All of us will find ourselves in a, in a situation like this at some point, whether great or small. It may simply be in an interpersonal relationship, not necessarily a systemic thing, but all of us suffer sometimes unjustly, sometimes for no good reason, and we can't, there's nothing we can really do about it. And Peter tells us now how to respond. He says, for the sake of conscience toward God, with a worshipful mind to God, he says, bear up under your sorrow, endure it with patience, for this finds favor or grace with God. Um, So when you suffer for doing good, when you suffer for Jesus, Peter has told us two, two primary things happen in that case. When you suffer, one, in your suffering, you show forth a light, a holiness, 
a grace that could only come from God. It will ultimately point the people who are witnesses to your suffering or even the people who contribute to your suffering. It's going to show them what God is like, and perhaps they'll turn and glorify him themselves, right? But then secondly, Peter also says, when you suffer for doing what is right, there is an eternal grace, an eternal reward for you. He says, you are commended by God. That's not a pat on the back from God, y'all. That is, and that is an eternally significant, everlasting, unfading reward that we receive. Eternal. It will never go away. That when, when you are, are maligned, when you're marginalized, when you are trampled on in this short, very temporary life, Peter says there's an eternal hope for us that we receive from Jesus. It's an eternal grace beyond all comparison. Now, that would be good news. That's good news for a lot of people. I'm not sure I've ever really suffered for Jesus, to be honest with you all. Um, But that's the promise we hold on to. Not that we rise up and demand our rights, but that we have an eternal hope in Christ. So let's, let's close by tying all this together. Peter has basically given us four commands here today. He told us four things. He said we must abstain from sin. We must restrict ourselves. We can't do all the things our flesh desires to do. Why not? Because the second command is we are to live in such a way that points our community, our relationships, our culture to God. So we live out our holiness. Then thirdly, we're told that we must be willingly, even joyfully submissive to human authority and institutions because in contributing to the common good, we glorify God and show the world what he looks like. And then lastly, we bear up under suffering if need be. If we do get trampled on, we endure it with godliness and patience because that glorifies God and that secures our hope, okay? Four wonderful commands that are terribly unnatural. (laughs) There's absolutely nothing about these four things that's easy or even palatable. I don't want to do these things. I'm just honest with you. My flesh does not like what Peter's telling us to do, okay? And so the question becomes, if I'm called to it as a Christian, if you're called to this, how do we actually see it through? Where do we get the power and the ability to do this? Well, think about it with me, okay? Those four things. Who do we know who had ultimate freedom and yet restricted himself for the sake of others? Perhaps someone who was divine and became human. Who do we know that lived a perfectly holy life not for his own sake, but for the sake of pointing other people to God? Who do we know that had all power to rule and yet willingly submitted himself to others and became a servant to the world? Who do we know who suffered unjustly and endured it to the end for the greater good of God's glory and grace? Y'all know who I'm talking about? Um, This is Jesus. It's Jesus. What Peter's telling us to do, this is what Jesus has done. And on the one hand, this is what the gospel tells us. The gospel says that nobody can fully obey what 1 Peter 2 tells us to do. Nobody in this room, no matter how mature you may be, nobody can can abstain from all sin entirely. Nobody can uh, suffer uh, perfectly with a a pure heart. Uh, Nobody can can, um, uh, uh, live in such a way that the world never finds anything wrong with us upon further examination. Nobody can live that kind of life. And yet that's what Jesus came to do for us. Jesus is the only one who did live that life, and he lived it not for his own benefit. He lived it in your place. He lived it for you so that his life now is counted 
to you. You're not saved by your holiness or your endurance under suffering. You're saved by what Jesus has done. Entirely a gift of his grace. That's what saves us. You're saved by trusting in what he's done for you. But Peter's also calling us now not to simply believe in the gospel and receive what Christ has done. He now says, imitate him. Follow in his footsteps. Jesus blazed the trail in all of these counterintuitive, countercultural things. And if he has gone before us, and if he is now our true allegiance, remember, we're not tethered to this world. We're aliens and strangers here. We submit to government and authority, but we don't find our hope there because our allegiance, our devotion, our hope is rooted in Jesus Christ. And if we follow him, Peter says, these counterintuitive commands will become possible for us. Because it's his power, it's his grace that gives us the ability to do these things. If we have trusted what he's done for us, then he'll give us the transforming propulsion now to live this way in the world. Not perfectly, but in a way that achieves his greater goal for us. Not a privatized, sequestered kind of life, but a life that seeks the good of our community and our world and a life that shows them the transforming power of God. So I mentioned this at the beginning of the sermon about Desmond Doss and how, how his life completely defied category. Nobody could make sense of him. Nobody knew what to do with him. They couldn't make sense of his convictions, but the result of those convictions was life and blessing for everyone he ever touched, for countless men and their families and the generations that followed after them because he committed him, himself to their rescue. Okay? And as Christians, see, this is our great challenge that we have to ask ourselves with sincerity, is there integrity in my life? Meaning, is what I say and what I believe, are those things integrated? Do they, do they match? Again, not perfectly. We're all hypocrites. But is there integrity in what I say I believe and how, and how I live in the midst of this world? Okay? Otherwise, we blend in. And we may blend in for any number of reasons. It may be for fear of being persecuted or hated. It may be blend, blend in because it's just easier. Because we may, we may think if we don't blend in, we're going to miss out on the fun or whatever it may be. But here in First Peter, we're being called to something that is not just good for us, it's good for everybody. Does my life only make sense in light of the grace and truth of Jesus? Because that's what it is to be a Christian. And I don't know about you, but I need to pray about this. I need help. So let's pray. Father, we ask, I ask, for the precious men and women in this room, that, Lord, where we, where we fall short here, that we would this morning embrace the wonderful grace of Jesus. None of us can do this. That's why he came to do it. That's why he came to uh, become a man, to live a holy life, to become our servant to give his life as a ransom, to suffer for our sake. Those things are gifts to us that Jesus was glad to, uh, to lay himself down, that we might have life in his name. And so, Father, would you right now, if, if we're feeling guilty about not doing enough, Lord, would you bring us back to the wonderful truth of the gospel that says our salvation, our hope, our life is, is rooted, it's anchored in Jesus Christ, not in our ability to measure up. Yes, Lord. But Father, would you also give us that, a healthy sense of that burden 
that there's a reason you didn't save us and take us straight to heaven. That, Father, you left us here for, for some indeterminate amount of time, maybe many years, maybe just a few. But we're here now for a wonderful purpose that has eternal significance. And give us, Lord, a deep sense of that, that this is a precious responsibility we've been given to, to be light in the world, Lord, a darkened world. That, Lord, we have the ability and the opportunity every single day to live in a counterintuitive way. Not, we don't, and we don't do it for our own benefit. We don't do it to get applause. We don't do it to make a point. We simply live, Father, according to your uh, grace and your truth so that others might see us and glorify you. What a wonderful vocation. What a wonderful uh, privilege. Father God, um, a lot of time I feel no good at this. Uh, a lot of the time, Lord, I just I look in the mirror and, I, and I, don't, I don't see 1 Peter 2 in my life. And Lord, I need your grace to forgive me and I need your grace, Lord, to change my heart. And I pray for any of us as we sit here where we recognize these places in our, in our lives where maybe in us we, that we see a lack of generosity, a lack of joy, uh, a lack of maybe a lack of integrity, a lack of honesty, a lack of compassion, a lack of self-control, a lack of patience. There's something that we may recognize in our lives that, that that light is not burning as brightly as we know it could and should. And Father, would you, would you fan that flame in us? Would you show us, Lord, that ultimately anything we want to become and are called to be, we see it in Jesus, lived out in its fullness. He is our Savior and He is our example. And so, Father, I, I pray for me and I pray for us this morning that, Lord, where, where you have called us, Lord, to be salt and light to the world, that we would not shy away, uh, that we would be a people, Lord, who are honest about our own failures, but that we are constantly pursuing um, uh, lives together that, um, that influence others in your direction. And, Lord, show us the joy of that. Show us the joy of that. Um, Lord, I, I pray, the last thing I'll pray, very specifically for those in this room who are suffering and perhaps suffering unjustly, that are being lied about or lied against, that are being taken to court, that are being um, slandered or gossiped against, whatever it may be, Father, um, that are being rejected, shut out because of their faith. Father, would you be, in a very, very precious way, Lord, would you be near to them and remind them that, Lord, as, as bad as that is, as bad as it feels, that, Lord, that uh, their, their hope is rooted in the eternal promise of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, even in the temporary things, Lord, that, uh, that maybe are beyond their control, they can do what is right and serve as an example of what it is to be transformed by grace. And Father, you can, you can do your great work, even in the midst of injustice, even in the midst of things that ought not to be. And I pray encouragement for those that, uh, that, that may be living in that place right now. Father, I pray that we come right now with open hands. We, 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 we will not succeed in this unless you are gracious to us and unless your Holy Spirit empowers it. And so, Father, give us convictions that change the way we live and give us the grace, Lord, to see it through. 
And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.